Thanks for joining us today at Springwell Church, where we want to draw spiritually thirsty people to Jesus by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. We hope that today's message builds you up, gives you a little insight, and helps you find a brand new perspective. You can find us in Taylor, South Carolina, and online at springwell.org. That's springwell.org. Now let's jump into the message. Now, uh, now we're going to shift gears and we're going to start a brand new series called Naked and Unafraid. How weird is that? <laughs> I mean, how weird is that? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to learn how to not be afraid to get naked. So our goal will be week three, that we'll just all be. That is not the goal. Jonathan said, man, don't say naked as many times as you did in the first service. <laughs> Can I tell him? He says, I don't want to see some of these people naked. <laughs> I don't want that image in my head. I don't even know what that means, y'all. We're actually going to be talking about some things that could be holding us back. And when I say holding us back, I'm referring to the things that, that tend to hinder our ability to move forward in life. Those kind of things that, that may be holding us from moving forward in, in our careers. And then there's probably some of you that honestly, you've, you've been thinking about making a career change, a job change, but, but you're afraid, right? <clears throat> it's the uncertainty of what lies ahead, and, and maybe you're secure where you are. Maybe, maybe you're making a particular salary here, but if you make a change to go in another direction, it'll mean less money, and you're concerned, how will we pay the bills? And so you're afraid. Hands in the way of us holding us back from taking the risk. Maybe it's holding us back, those things that will stand in the, in the way of us moving forward in our relationships. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Anybody been hurt? Anybody been betrayed by a friend? Maybe a family member? You've been hurt? Raise your hand. The rest of you are liars. <clears throat> we all get hurt, don't we? And so what, what does that hurt do? That hurt tends to hold us back. And so what we do is we tend to not push forward. We don't move forward in relationships because we know that there's the risk, there's the potential that we'll be hurt again. Maybe there's some things that are standing in the way of your sobriety. I often ask people uh, that, that come to me and, and they're struggling through an addiction, and I I'll often ask the question, what do you think God wants from you? And they all look really at me like I'm stupid, like some of you are looking at me right now. He wants me to be sober. And, and, and my answer usually is, that's not it. There's, there's so much more to it than that. God just doesn't want you sober. He wants you Free. Free. And so oftentimes I'll say you have to figure out why you struggle in addiction. What's the why behind it? And to figure out the why behind it, it's, it's scary when you start to break down the pieces of addiction, when you start to break down the pieces of the things that hold us back. We have to face life and we have to face the real truth. And the real truth can be scary sometimes. 
It could be the things that are even holding us back in in our relationship with God. The fear of exposure. The fear of exposure holds us back from taking the risk in a job move or a business adventure or our relationships, and it doesn't matter what those relationships might be. And it holds us back from, from moving forward in life. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of, of King David, and we're going to learn how to get naked and not be afraid. You excited? <laughs> maybe, you're, maybe you're a little scared? Hang on. Hang on as we process even what we're talking about today. Let's jump into our scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now just so you know, and maybe for some of us the only thing that we really know about the Ark of the Covenant is what we learned from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and so if you watch that movie, maybe, maybe your impression was that the Ark of the Covenant really was more like a, uh, just a good luck charm. It was a rabbit's foot that you put in the front of your pocket and, and that would bring you luck. Listen, that, that's not what it was to David. That's not what it was to the children of Israel. It was more than that. And this is really crucial. It's really important. You'll never understand the text this morning. The Ark of the Covenant represented, it represented the power of God, and so they wanted to make sure that they took the Ark with them into, into every battle that they went into. But it was more, it was more than that. It represented, it represented the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant represented the peace of God, the love of God, the presence of God. Let's read on. And those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, with shouts and sounds of trumpets. So for his entire life, and I don't even know what David understood about the ark of the covenant. But what I do know is that for his entire life, he had dreamed of a time when the ark would be brought back to a place of prominence in the city of Jerusalem. David's ancestors, he had been told stories, David's ancestors had carried the ark across deserts on the battlefields. Because it represented the power and what? I can't hear you. The presence of God. They had recovered it from the enemies who stole it because those enemies, you, you should really read the text, they thought it's going to be like a good luck charm. We don't want to worship your God, we don't want to do your thing with your God, but if we have the ark, then we'll be, we'll be victorious in battles. And they found out that that wasn't true. So for the past 80 years, they had kept it in private estates out of the public eye. And then I read this. It's a very sad statement to me, but I understand it. Some commentary said this, I, <clears throat> Since not everyone knew where the ark was, since not everyone knew where the ark was, it had been forgotten by many. 
the, the presence of God had been forgotten. The, the presence of God had somehow been lost. And when I, when I first surrendered my life to Jesus, and that was when I was about 19 years old and really began to understand God, the thing that, that, that was the sweetest to me was that God would, would have something to do with somebody like me. And, and the thing that overwhelmed me the most was the sweet presence of God. Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, literally, to be in His presence. I mean, you, I mean, really, for Him to whisper in your ear and, and tell you that He loved you, but to be in His presence, to feel His presence, to be in a relationship with God. It was incredible. Karen and I got married, and I was in school, uh, in school full-time, working full-time. She was working three jobs. I was working at least one and going to school full-time. And I remember what it was like. And, and I had not been in the gym for a while. I quit the gym. And then I decided i got to get back in the gym. So I did. I said, okay, 5 o'clock every morning. I'm going to get up and be at the gym. Okay. About 4.30, I was getting up every morning so I could be in the gym about 5. Because I had to go to the gym at 5 because that was the only time during the day I could work out. And so my point is, is that I, so it was 5 o'clock, I had to be at the gym, and then I had to take a shower, and then I was on the road going to school, going to work, whatever the case might be. And before long, what I noticed was I had completely, like, pushed God out. I was just too busy for God. And, of course, God convicted me. Hello? Has he convicted you? Well, if not, I'm going to tell him to. I'm just saying so when I thought, okay, okay, I'll get up in the morning, I'll get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and then I'll go into, into this little room. We didn't have but four rooms in our house. It wasn't like the house was that big. And I'd go into this one little room, and there wasn't anything in it because we didn't have any furniture anyway. You know what I'm saying? Just one bed. Hello, but that was enough. And so anyway, we were in, I was in this one room, and I'd get down on my knees, and I would start to pray, and I didn't feel anything. I, I, I didn't feel anything. And, and honestly, most mornings for a while, I, w- I would find myself falling asleep. And I'd wake up, and then I'd be convicted. I'd say, God, I'm so sorry. And then I'd say, well, it's your fault. I just left me here. Like, you should have showed up. I mean, I... And then I remember one morning when suddenly his felt presence was back. And ever since that moment, I just never, ever wanted to miss the presence of God. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. Some of you, I, because God is God and I know who He is, and some of you as followers of Jesus, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, what you used to feel, and suddenly you don't feel that anymore. But not David. David remembered. And just so you know, David wasn't perfect. David miserably failed God over and over and over again. But the thing that David never forgot was the sweet presence of God. And he longed for the day when he would bring the ark back to the city where it belonged, and in doing so, he would give the people something to celebrate and God the glory that he deserved. It was all about the presence of God, not just the power of God. It was all about the presence of God. And it was like one of the major milestones preparing the way for David to build God a house. Now, God, David had a desire. He wanted to build God a house. In fact, 1 Chronicles 22.5, it says that this would be a house of great magnificence and fame. It would be his son that would be able to build the temple, the incredible temple, the magnificent temple. David had too much blood on his hands. But that does explain. It does explain why 
thousands of people left their homes and they left their shops and the streets of Jerusalem to get a glimpse of history past. And maybe, maybe during this time, they said, hey man, David's going to get the, he's going to get the ark. And, and maybe there were, there were young people, maybe there were children that were going to their moms and dads. And, and maybe their moms and dads said, you need to go to grandma and grandpa. Let them tell you about the ark of the covenant. Let me tell you about what we experienced and, and how we fought many, many victories because of the presence of God. It was awesome. And so they filled the, the streets to reflect on, to get a glimpse of history past, but also to be a part of history presence. I'm just saying it was a big day, and I'm not doing a good job of really telling you how big of a day it was. I, I don't know how. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit somehow that He'll do it. But what I do know, it was, it was such a big that the king himself broke bad by taking off his royal robes, wrapping his linen garments around his waist, and, and, he, and he headed out into the streets. Probably doesn't mean much to you, but think of our president that suddenly, maybe in the morning, you know, the news would come on, and there he would be running out of the White House, not, not, not in a stately suit, Maybe in his running, not naked. I'm just saying not naked. Lord, nobody won't see that. But imagine him running out in the streets. And let us just say that there's, there's no guards around him. There's no motorcade. There's no, he's just running out into the streets. We would all think, well, that's weird. That's dangerous. That's the way it was for David. The streets were not where the king was expected to be, but when the music in him met the music around him, he couldn't help himself. And so he was partying like it was 1999. I didn't get that out of a commentary. Let's read on. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, some of you will probably pronounce his name Michael, but actually, technically, it's Michal, daughter of Saul. Hmm. Look at those next few words. She watched from where? Hmm. I can't hear you. She watched from, hmm, maybe it's all about perspective. She watched from a window. Maybe it's about having the best seat to see everything that was going on. Maybe that's it. And when she saw the King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So David had just had one of the best days. I mean, this is a personal mission accomplished. A, a milestone had been reached and a dream had come true. And David danced in the street celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the party ended in the front lawn of the palace. And, and then he returned to his own household to bless his own household. And verse 20 says this. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and she said, Hmm. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view, full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. And I wrote this and I thought, it. well, that's not very nice. I mean, he is the king. And he is your husband. Have a little respect. 
And just so you know, he did not dance naked or half naked. And really, honestly, I don't know some of you that grew up in church. I, I grew up in church believing that he danced naked. That's kind of like what I was told. Naked, naked, naked. I just, I'm just messing with Jonathan right now. Sorry. <laughs> Had nothing to do with the sermon. That's kind of what I was taught, but that's not what happened. What happened was he took off those kingly, royal robes off. I'm just saying that David didn't measure up to Michal's idea of what proper protocol for a king should be. And she let him know it. See, bottom line, bottom line for her was that she felt that the king of Israel should not sink so low as to hmm, socialize, party, touch, with the common people. He had an image to protect. He was a king. That's not how kings act. Kings don't, kings don't, they don't hang out with the people down here. The kings are up here and the people down here, well, it's a different class. She saw it as being totally disgraceful, shameful, ridiculous, and unacceptable. But here's what you have to know about Michal. She was a princess long before she ever was a king, a queen. See, she had been raised in a mighty king's palace, and so what she understood was that we are different. Was that we do have an image. And so we have to protect that image, and so we put on a plastic face and we pretend. We pretend to be people that we're not. We pretend to be in control. We, we never, let, never let the people see you scared. Protect your image. She had codes of conduct, and she had ethics, and there was protocol in her mind because she was raised in a mighty king's palace. See, David. David wasn't raised in a king's palace. David was just a shepherd boy. For David, David remembered the presence of God. He never forgot it. David remembered that when he was a shepherd, when he was out in the field, he remembered that God's presence, the, the presence of God and the power of God, give him the power to be able to overcome a, the lion and the bear. And then when he stood in front of a giant, he didn't have to be afraid. He didn't have to fear what some nine-foot giant could do to him because he understood not how strong he was, but he understood the presence and the power of God. These two people came from the different side of the tracks, so to speak. Michal had the image to protect, and, and David said, forget the image. I want to be with my people. And those royal robes were too stuffy and they were too formal, so he removed those garments so that he could join the party. For her, it was ridiculous, and it was, it was careless. It was overexposure, not physical. Not physical, it was over-emotional exposure. For David to be in the streets made him, here's the word, vulnerable. It made him vulnerable, maybe even reckless. 
So David responds to her. I love this. I think it's awesome. David says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. You got it? You see the attitude? Just a little bit of attitude. Maybe he got his hand on his hip. I don't know. Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. So it sounds like he's a little sassy. Maybe he's saying, where's your kingly daddy now? For me, Hall, window watching was the safest place to be. The best position to be in. Because she had an image to protect. Window, window watching is always based on some fear that causes people to pull away. The fact that she was, was angry can at least be in part of the house that she was raised in. Because she, she saw... The craziness of her dad. And I say crazy because he went crazy trying to protect his image, to, to make sure that people knew that he was the king. He was the king. He was the one in power. And so when David started to rise up, he was jealous of David. Remember the story? And he tried to kill this little boy named David, remember? But that's the way it is when you have an image to protect. When you're, when you're trying to to build up yourself before everybody else when you want everybody to see that you are strong and empowered and controlled. He was such a paranoid monarch who kept up his guard and kingly status in place 24-7. So when the logic tells us that it's not safe to be close to people, that's when the logic it's window logic that says, you know what, I'm going to view, I'm going to watch from the window. I'm going to look down at. It's not safe to interact with people, to connect with people. And I thought it was funny. I, I thought about this morning. I thought, I'm just talking about connection, really. And I thought we're having a connect lunch today. Guess I'm the only one that even sees the connection. Get it? Connection. Why do we call it that? Because we want to do more than you just to join a church. It's not that you're just joining a church. It's that you're connecting with a family. You understand what I'm talking about? We want you to build relationships. And really, when you're serving, I hope that what happens is you serve here. If that's your first step, that you're building relationships. Well, why do we want you in a, in a growth group? We want you in a growth group so that you can build relationships, so that you can let down these false images, so that you can be who you are. And run the risk of being loved by people. But it's scary. So the, the better plan, the safer course of action always seems to be to pull back and to keep your distance from people. And so relationships, all relationships become distant and cold. See, here's the thing about that. It's not just that you don't interact with maybe your neighbors. It's, it's, it's not just that you don't interact maybe with the people at work. It's that somehow you begin to shut down and so you build up walls and so you don't connect with the people that you love the most in this world because now you look at everybody just like King Saul. You look at everybody suspiciously wondering if they're going to hurt you next. And I know what I'm talking about because I've lived there.
We're afraid of being found out, so we hold out. I had to read that because I thought that was awesome. Let me try it one more time. (laughs) Because we're afraid of being found out, we hold out. Yes, sir. We hold out for fear of exposure. David, David danced in the streets and, and became, and here's a word that I used just a minute ago, it's, it's, it's vulnerable. And that's a dirty word for window watchers. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a dirty word. It, being vulnerable feels like you're putting yourself in a position of weakness, a, a position to be taken advantage of. It feels like it's overexposure. It feels like it's dangerous. And guess what? It is. It is dangerous. It is exposure. It's opening yourself up to people that may judge you when you do. The risk is high, but the reward is great. I'm blessed. I'm blessed that I get to do life with people when I can tell them all my junk, even as a pastor. And they don't run away from me. To know that I'm loved and I'm cared for, not because of my position, but because of a relationship. But let me be really clear being vulnerable doesn't mean that you get naked with everybody. Be careful how you quote me on that. Like at work tomorrow, maybe not the first thing you say, our pastor said, don't get naked with everybody. There's a select few. Yeah, be careful. See, being vulnerable doesn't mean that we trust everybody, commit to everyone, or listen to everyone. But it does mean that you are going to have to run the risk with a few people. Vulnerability, according to one author, is making a move with no guarantee of the outcome. Truth is, you could be betrayed. Truth is, you could be hurt. Truth is, you could be taken advantage of. Truth is, it is dangerous. But I can tell you from personal experience, it's worth it. See, the problem comes when uh, when we get stuck in the window, but we still experience to we still expect to experience the the relational growth that can only happen when we drop our guard. Stop protecting ourselves and do life with this open, walls-down, street-like way. Y'all with me? Relationships will never get better when you're staying in the window. They never will. You're going to have to be vulnerable. Can have to trust. And it's tough. You have to be careful. But it's worth it. Marriages and friendships and families get stronger in the place where people interact, mingle, engage, and become vulnerable. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing? How are you doing? Are you a street dancer? Or are you a window watcher? 
Webster defines vulnerable as capable of physically or emotionally wounded. There's a risk. And maybe you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been broken. And now you only watch from the window. I'm talking to Christians right now. Look, look at me. That's not God's plan. It's not His plan for you. His plan for you is to experience the beauty of, of community. Community, I don't even know where I got it. I might have made it up myself. Who knows? But the definition of community is is. It's that place where you have a safe place to fall. Are you there? Do you have that? Or honestly, are you still holding back? Is there that thing that stands in the way? Is it the fear of exposure? What if they, what if they find out? What if they discover who I really am? So, standing here thinking, praying, you know, Lord, what do I do right now? The temptation is probably just to say, if you think, you know what, I'm more of a window watcher than I am a street dancer. It's maybe to have you slip up your hand, but you know what, rather than doing that, would you just, would you just wrestle with the question? And then right now, just talk to Jesus about it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe your whole fear of getting close to God was the fear of exposure. What if he knows? If he knows, will he still love me? Absolutely. I, I got a weird illustration that I give. I made it up all by myself because you know it's going to be weird. Let's say, for example, that on your wedding days you stand at the altar with your future mates, your future mate, your future spouse. What if you knew that without any doubt, that person would cheat on you every day. Every single day. In fact, they wouldn't miss a day. Would you still marry them? I've asked that question a lot over the years when I've met with people, and the answer is always the same. They look at me like, you idiot? Of course I would and what I want you to understand is that it is a good analogy in that we are the bride of Christ. And here's the thing, is that when we come to Jesus, we come with all of our brokenness and He sees it all. Not just, not just all of our past, not just all of our present, but, but Jesus, God has the ability to be able to see into the future. So He knows all of the mistakes that we're going to make even in the future. And yet God still draws us to Himself shares with us His great love for us, knowing that we will commit adultery every single day. Some of us will do it all day, every day. We'll choose something else, somebody else, some material thing, a job, crazy things that we put before God. And He still looks at us and says, I know. So I'm going to pay the price on the cross for all of that brokenness. I'm going to shed my blood. I'm going to pay the price so that we can have a relationship. Is that not crazy? And 
And why would he do such a thing? Because he's crazy about you. So if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're thinking right now, because I'm thinking, how could you say no to that? You know, how do you say no to the incredible love of God? How do you say no? So every head is bowed and every eye is closed. No one's looking around. Maybe you just say to him right now, God, I'm a mess. I've been a mess all my life. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I'm telling you that I believe in you and I believe in what you did for me on the cross. And the beauty of your love is too much for me to wrap my brain around. It's incredible. And I know that you're alive, you're not dead. You were raised on the third day and I can feel you, your presence right here with me right now. And so I'm asking you to the best of my ability, I'm asking you to forgive me of all of my past sins, all of my present sins. And God, I need you to forgive me even for my future sins. It's hard for me to understand. It's hard for me to wrap my brain around the depth of your love. I can only thank you for it. And to the best of my ability, from this day forward, I just want to fully surrender and commit my life to you. Thank you for your love. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word, Lord, and for what it teaches for how, Lord, we're encouraged by it and we're challenged by it, Lord. And Lord, I do pray that you'll guide us through David's story. And Lord, one of the things that we can learn over the next few weeks is, God, how to just be vulnerable. Vulnerable with the people around us and run the risk, Lord, of letting down walls. And Lord, that maybe some of us for the first time, Lord, can just stop trying to create this goofy image that we know we're not going to measure up to. And, Lord, that we can be surrounded with a group of people, Lord, that will accept us and love us for as we are. Hold us accountable, absolutely. But love us. Lord, I don't even know how to say thank you for your love. That still amazes me more and more every day. I love you. It's in your sweet name that we pray.